inspirational kickoff to Missions Week, right? Uh, what bothers the most, I saw some of you taking furious notes uh, during that time to do that. So, Well, it is a great week to celebrate. So if you're new to Liberty Heights Church, uh, one of the things we've done for the last several years is we've set aside a whole week that we just call Missions Week to focus on the call of God on our lives to take the gospel both to our neighbors and to the nations. And so let me kick off Missions Week this year with a, a little story from the past. And so when I got here uh, nine and a half years ago, the church was in a difficult, to say the least, uh, financial situation. And I'd been here for a few weeks, and, and I remember our financial assistant telling me, um, if we don't have a, a really, really big offering, I'm not sure we can make the mortgage payment. That's just kind of where we were uh, 10 years ago when I got here. And so I got up and challenged the church at that time. The church was less than half of the size that we are now. And I said, we've got to have an incredibly generous sacrificial offering. Uh, that's just where we find ourselves. And about 400 people at that time uh, gave $83,000 on that one Sunday. It's an incredible act of sacrifice, right? So here's why I'm telling you that story. Uh, the reason people gave so sacrificially was there was angst about the thought of losing a building. A lost building motivated people to give. Now, here's what I'm going to challenge you with this missions uh, week this year as we approach our offering next week for missions. It's the only special offering we take up the entire year. I'm going to say this, that what should break our hearts more than the thought of a lost building are lost people. And so a church more than twice the size as that church was 10 years ago, they gave $83,000. I believe that the goal we set for Missions Week offering of $45,000 is just scratching the surface of what God could do if we were more grieved by lost people than the thought of a lost building. And so I'm going to encourage you to pray about that this week and ask God how he would have you to sacrifice and participate in the missions offering uh, next week. Now, something new we're doing this year for the missions offering is this, is that the first 45,000 that comes in is going to go to directly support our member missionaries. And so the people around you every week that serve with FCA and crew and Athletes in Action and uh, Hope Foundation, all those places that sit around you every week, uh, the first 45,000 is going to their support uh, for the upcoming year. So I know they're praying you'd be incredibly generous, right? And so, uh, so that's what we're going to do. Here's what else is new this year. Everything given above that amount, above 45000 this year, and I believe we can blow that out of the water if we want to, every dollar given above that, we're setting aside this year to offset the cost of uh, mission trips for our church family. You know, we've sent uh, hundreds of people out on mission trips over the last 10 years, and it's a big part of our culture here. And one of the greatest detriments to going on a mission trip is uh, simply the cost. And so this year, everything over and above $45,000, we are going to offer scholarships to help offset the cost of Missions Week. So to say this is an important offering coming up is an understatement. To say that the resources are available well beyond that $45,000 goal are in this room is an incredible understatement. So begin praying about that, begin uh, having conversations as a family, and what would it look like for you to give sacrificially because your heart is broken, not at the thought of a lost building, but at the thought of lost people. So we cannot wait to see what God does in that offering. Well, uh, when we began to plan for Missions Week, uh, every year we have a guest speaker to kind of kick off Missions Week. We have Midweek, a lot of fun. If you've never been to our Midweek celebration, I encourage you to plan and be there this week. And then I wrap up Missions Week uh, next week. And so uh, called um, when I thought for Missions Week, how does God stir our hearts for his work? And the way that God stirs our hearts for his work is through the preaching of his word. And so this is the most important week of the year for us, Missions Week. And so I called the best preacher that I knew, and he couldn't come. And so when he couldn't come, 
I called a friend, right? It's what you do when, when they can't come. No, in all seriousness, let me tell you what great preaching is. Uh, great preaching is biblically faithful and it's culturally relevant. And I sat through the first message this morning, and I'm going to tell you this. It's biblically faithful, it's culturally relevant, so you're going to be blessed today, and you're going to be encouraged and challenged. And so uh, Pastor Titus Green has been with us now three or four times. Uh, he's the pastor at First Baptist Merritt Island, and uh, he asked me, he said, how did you, how do you think it went the first service? And I'll just tell you this, I had several people stop at the guest table and say, that was great, we wish he were our pastor. I don't know, he probably... It's common. He said that's common. So, so would you welcome back to Liberty Heights Church, Pastor Titus Green. So I really do want to encourage you to pray for your pastor. Um, we're trusting he'll be saved any year now. I keep coming back just for him. No, um, you were actually like concerned about his salvation there, I could tell. But Brad and I go way back, and uh, I remember him from high school. Um, he was a local basketball legend for the Carlisle Indians. Man, just a local legend. Yeah. I think he was heavily recruited by mom. Am I correct by that? I'm pretty sure. He and I actually, I reminded him last time I was here that he and I actually had a, a, cl- a class together in college. Um, and he didn't remember me at all. Um, he actually didn't remember that whole year in college at all. But that was before he came to know Jesus. So anyhow, we'll put that out of our minds Right now, I do want to say how thankful I am for Brad, and I also do want you to know as a church how God uses your pastor beyond this context. Uh, God has uniquely gifted Brad to be an encourager to pastors and other local churches. Um, and, and when I told the first service that, I could tell everyone was waiting for the punchline. I'm not joking. He really is uniquely gifted to, uh, to serve pastors and churches. He's been an encouragement to me, so thank you for letting me come back uh, again. If you have your Bibles, turn to Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah chapter 29, uh, you, you know by now, obviously, since you've sat through the service, that this is the kickoff to mission week for you as a church family. And if you are a, a person who's new to Christianity or maybe new to this church family and not familiar with the language, the, the mission or the mission of God is a reference to the one primary mission that God is accomplishing among the people of this world. God has one primary mission, and it's to seek out to reach people who are far from God and to bring them close into his family through the life, death, and resurrection power of Jesus Christ, his Son. And since the one primary mission of God is for all of the people groups on this earth, what he's doing is calling all his people as the church to align their lives with that one mission. Here's a way of saying that. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, he's calling you to follow him into the mission of God among the nations. The way that that your pastors and leaders say that is that God is calling you as the church of Jesus to be a part of reaching your neighbor's and the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what this morning is all about. Uh, It's part of you being a person who leverages, who aligns your life with the one and only mission of Jesus in this community, among your neighbors, and around the communities of the world, to the nations of this earth. And and this morning, we're going to focus our attention 
on the mission of Christ to your neighbors. You living on mission to the people where you live, work, learn, and play. Next week, Pastor Brad is going to be focusing your attention on the global mission of Christ, how you can be a part of what God is doing among the people groups of planet Earth. But when Pastor Brad invited me to come, shared with me uh, just the idea of neighbors and nations and asked me to talk about uh, the mission of Christ among your neighbors, there was a passage of Scripture that the Holy Spirit, uh, I believe, led me to and laid on my heart that's been influential for me. And it's Jeremiah uh, chapter 29, where we'll be this morning. And before we read Jeremiah 29, I want to give you a little bit of background into the context and where we are in the history of God's people. Many of you know this, that thousands of years ago, God decided he chose to relate uh, and care for, in a very special way, the people of Israel. The, The people of Israel became God's chosen people. As a matter of fact, they were chosen by God to be the people or the family through which his son Jesus would be born as the Messiah or the Christ. But even though they were his chosen people and he related and cared for them in a unique way, he also let his people know that their sin would not go unpunished, that he would he would not be satisfied for them to live like all the other nations and to live in a cycle of sin. And if you know anything about the Bible at all, and if you know anything about the people of Israel at all in the Bible, Here's what you know, that the moment God took them out of slavery in Egypt, they began a regular pattern, a cycle of sin. As a matter of fact, what you find is that they go through this pattern of rebellion, punishment, repentance, and restoration. They rebel against God. He punishes their rebellion. They repent. They turn away from it. And then they're restored. That happens over and over again through the Old Testament. Ultimately, that pattern, that cycle of rebellion, it culminated in God doing something so severe that he moved his people. He allowed his people to be driven out of their very homeland, out of Israel itself, and they became exiles in other countries. So, for instance, 600 years before Jesus came... The people, the Jewish people, were taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. That's where we are in Jeremiah 29. The people of God have been removed from their homes. They're exiles and slaves in a city called Babylon. Now, some of you are familiar with Babylon. It's an ancient city that was actually built on the city of Babel. Do you guys remember the story of of Babel? Any of you guys remember the story of Babel? Okay, a little better than the first service. No one in the first service knew, and I thought, man, this is going to be really crazy. So I brought my flannel graph. No, I'm serious. Here's the story. Babel was a city where the people tried to build a tower to heaven. They wanted to make themselves God. And God, in a response to that, to humble them, he confused their language, and he scattered people throughout the world. So the word Babel literally means confused, because God confused their speech. And the city of Babylon is built on the ancient site of Babel, which is why Babylon comes from the word Babel. And in the Bible, that was a lot of words. I really did that. In the Bible, Babel and Babylon, in the Bible, the city of Babylon represents the city of confusion. And when you look at the scriptures, what you find is that nowhere is Babylon more confused than in their worship 
of God. As a matter of fact, the ancient city of Babylon had 50 different temples to 50 different gods because they didn't know which god to worship. So they basically worshiped anyone or anything. Uh, If you compare that to Israel, they had one temple to worship the one true God. So put all of that together so you can understand the context here. The Jews, the people of God, have their true homeland, Jerusalem, But they are living now in exile among godless, confused culture. Can you imagine what it must be like to live in a godless, confused culture? You don't have to imagine, right? That's right where we live today, a godless, confused culture. And God uses Jeremiah to write a letter to those kinds of people, telling them how he desires them to live as his people in the midst of a confused, godless culture. And just so you'll know, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 say this, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So live as sojourners and exiles. Church, we are exiles. Our true home is the new Jerusalem, heaven itself, and we live here on a godless, confused planet among these people as the people of God, chosen to know him and be cared for by him. And he gives us in this text his heart for how we live as his people and it confused godless culture. All of that is background to understand Jeremiah 29, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 4. It said, and when it says it, it's talking about the letter God used Jeremiah to write to these exiles. Verse 4, it said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Skip down to verse 10 really quickly. For thus says the Lord... When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. I just read verse 11 because for some of you, that's the first time you've ever heard it in its actual context. So the next time that you buy a plaque with that verse on it for a graduate, just know God's good plan for his people here was that they would spend 70 years as exiled slaves. Just a little word to bless you there. Just a little word to bless you. So here's the story. There are three things in this passage of scripture that I want to show you on how we live as as God's people in a godless, confused culture. Here's what I want you to see. The first thing I want you to see is this. God wanted his people to live where they were. God wanted his people to live where they were. Look at verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles, notice this phrase, whom I have sent 
into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Skip down to verse 7. You'll see he says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you. Now, here's why that verse is really important. Here's why those phrases are really important. When you go to verse 1 of this chapter, you find that the Bible says that Nebuchadnezzar had taken them out of Jerusalem into exile in Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar was the one who actually physically took these people captive and moved them out of the city. But in verses 4 and 7, God himself makes it clear he was the ultimate cause for them moving from Jerusalem to Babylon. He was the ultimate cause amidst all the other social and spiritual influences that really were at play, at play including Nebuchadnezzar, including their own sin. It was almighty God, the sovereign God of the universe who chose that his people would live in Babylon. He wanted them to live there, so he, by his power, sent them there. He caused the move to take place. And listen, it's really important that we understand how this sets the tone for how his people would live. Because his people could have seen Nebuchadnezzar as the ultimate cause for why they were in Babylon and lived with anxiety and anger and resentment and fear. Can you imagine having anxiety over your government leaders must have been crazy to live back then. They, they could have seen that their own sin was the reason why they were in Babylon. And they would have lived with guilt and regret and shame and kind of shriveled into themselves about their own smallness or their own brokenness. They could have seen random chance as the reason that there was no real reason. They just were in Babylon and they would have lived with apathy and indifference. But when God's people saw that God himself... He was the one who sent them to Babylon because he wanted them there. They were able to live, not with anger or anxiety or guilt or shame or apathy or indifference. They were able to live with purpose and direction. Because sure, God used Nebuchadnezzar, and sure, the people did sin, but it was truly and ultimately God and only God that made them move to Babylon. He was the one who had them there. And friend, here's the reason why I say that. The same is true for you. You can think that you live in this community because your parents brought you here or birthed you here. You can think you live in this community because you chose to move here. You can think you live in this community because you got a job here. But when you think about this, that the fact is God himself has arranged the circumstances of your life, including the place you work, and including the government, and including who you were born to and where they lived. When you think that God himself has chosen you to live in this community during this season of your life, it should change the way you see yourself here. You live in the house where you live. You work at the place where you work. You, you, you go to school where you go to school. You get your groceries where you shop. And I really do hope it's Aldi because that place rocks. You play golf where you play golf or tennis where you play tennis or bridge where you play bridge or poker where you play po I was just, just testing you there. Just testing you there. You, you live, you work, you learn, you play in this place, not on accident, but because God himself has strategically placed you here. 
And that brings me to the next point. Not only did God want his people to live where they were, God wanted his people to engage the city, not withdraw from it. Look back at verse 5. He says this. Verse 5 says, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters And multiply there and do not decrease. Now, here's the reason why that passage is so important. In the chapter before 29, chapter 28, I could do that math. Chapter 28, there was a false prophet that arose among God's people. And he was telling them false prophecies. He said, listen, you're going to exile, but you won't be there long. In in a matter of at least two years, he says, God will come back and he will rescue you from Babylon. So don't even settle down. Just sort of sit on the bench, run out the clock. God's going to come back and, and you'll be safe. You'll get to go back to Jerusalem. Don't engage. Don't live there. As a matter of fact, he began to try and convince them to settle on the outskirts of the city of Babylon. And God writes this letter through Jeremiah and says, no, it will be 70 years Almost all of you adults will live and die in the city of Babylon. And so while you're there, do life there. Build houses, plant gardens, get married, have kids, raise those kids, grow, live, multiply, be alive, do life in the city. And here's what that means for us this morning. God has not strategically planted you in this community so you could simply run out the clock until you go to heaven. It's not the purpose of God that you would live where you live and work where you work and play where you play and learn where you learn by simply sitting on the bench and running out the clock till Jesus comes again. And here's one of the reasons why I emphasize that point. For a long time in Christianity, there was confusion among God's people. And the confusion was this. We would read passages of Scripture that was calling us to live separate from our world. And we would draw conclusions that what it meant to be separate from our world was actually to be isolated from our culture. Now, now let me be clear about this. The Bible is very, very, very clear that we are called to live distinctly different lives as followers of Jesus Christ, right? Our, our lives are not supposed to match all of the norms of our culture at large, all right? You you need to know that. God's called you to live holy, upright, just lives inside of a godless culture. I'm not talking about people who teach that. The Bible teaches that. What I'm talking about is the desire that many Christians seem to have to completely withdraw from the culture altogether. The, The desire at times to isolate ourselves from the godlessness of people that are living around us. I've noticed, even in my own lifetime, that there are tendencies for Christians to only hang out with other Christians so that when a Christian throws a party or a get-together, they only invite other Christians and non-Christians need not apply. So then when non-Christians throw their get-together, they don't even bother to ask a Christian because the Christians don't want anything to do with them. Some of you guys have no idea about the dynamic I'm talking about, and if that's your case, God bless you. Be thankful. But many of you know exactly the struggle I'm talking about. In many places, especially in the 20th century, the church wanted to withdraw from culture in order to protect themselves from godlessness. So so when Christians wanted to play Little League, they formed their own Christian Little League that only allowed Christian kids to play. 
When, when Christians wanted to work out, they didn't join a local gym. They built a Christian gym, a family life center that only allowed Christians to work out there. When Christians wanted to educate their kids, they formed Christian schools that only allowed Christian kids to enroll. And I'm not saying it's a sin to have a Christian sports program or a Christian family life center or a Christian school. What I'm saying is that it's a danger to want to live in a community by isolating yourself from the people of that community. Do you guys know what happens to a culture? Pop quiz. Do you know what happens to a culture when the Christians of a culture begin to isolate themselves from that culture? Does that question make sense? Do you know what happens to a culture when the Christians of that culture isolate themselves? I'll tell you. Brace yourself. Shockeroo. That culture loses all Christian influence. We become salt that will not leave its shaker. And I am thoroughly convinced that one of the reasons we are seeing such rapid decay in our culture is that for decades in the 20th century, many Christians totally abandoned the culture at large. And do you realize what we're telling our community? Do you realize what we're telling the people of this city when we withdraw from their lives? Whether we say it or not, we're telling them that the Jesus in us is not as powerful or influential as the devil in them. We're saying, whether we use the words or not, that we are fine with us going to heaven even if they go to hell. We're saying by our actions, if not our words, that we don't care about them, their families, their plight, their pain, their present, or their future. And church, that's not who we want to be. And I've got to tell you, I don't believe that's who you are as a church. I don't believe that this is a church that is seeking to just run out the clock till Jesus comes from. Everything I know, you desire to be engaged in this community. We just prayed for community partners that are neck deep in the pain and need of this community. But you need to know something. There's something more than just living in a community. There's a greater goal. Look what it says about the greater goal of God. He doesn't just want his people to live where they are, and he doesn't just want them to engage in the culture rather than withdraw from it. God wants him to, he wants his people to live. He wants his people to live for the welfare of their city. Look at verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Here's what God says. Go, do life in the city. Engage with the people that are there and actively, actively seek the welfare of the city, of the people of the city where you live. Many of you know this, but that word welfare is actually the, the Hebrew word for shalom. It's, it's a word that, that means peace, but it's not just peace. It's, it's the fullness of well-being. It, it literally means a, a desire to have well-being in every single facet of your life, emotionally, relationally, intellectually, socially, spiritually, physically. It, it came to to be such a, a predominant thought among Hebrews that 
Jews to this very day use it like the word hello. They say shalom. And when they say shalom to one another, what they are saying is, is I desire as, as part of my family, my greater family, I desire you to have well-being in every way you can have well-being. I desire for you to have shalom. And God says to his people, actively seek the shalom of the city where I have sent you. Don't live self-centered, self-seeking, self-serving lives in exile. Seek the good of your neighbors. Seek the holistic well-being of the people where you live, work, learn, and play. Listen to me, church. God wants to do a work in you. And he wants to do a work through you that brings the peace of God to the people of this city. God wants to use your life to reach and care for the lives of people who are far from God but close to you. God desires to do a work of grace among a confused, godless culture, and he wants to do that work through you. He desires it. Four of you believe it. I'm pumped about you four. I'm pumped about you four. And here's the story. We know this, that ultimately the greatest peace, the greatest well-being comes for every man, woman, and child when they receive the grace of God through the gospel of Jesus. We know that. We know that it's only by reconciliation to God that people are restored to a right kind of life. But often, listen, often, very often, the way that God opens the door for us to declare the gospel of Jesus is when we live to demonstrate the gospel of Jesus by lives that resemble Jesus in sacrificial service. So let me just summarize kind of what we've seen in this passage, and I'm going to give you a couple of practical things that have been helpful in my life and for my church family. Here's what we've seen. You live where you live because God has placed you there. And God has placed you there on purpose with a mission to bring well-being, to bring peace, shalom to the people of this City, God wants you to be on a mission, guys. A mission that reaches with the love and power of Jesus people who are far from God but close to you every single day of the week. So my question becomes, what does that look like? Like for us, I know that many of you are tempted to go out and build a house and plant a garden because that's what the Bible says. That's how you reach. What's that actually look like? Well, let me give you two things that have been really helpful for me and our church family. The first is this. As you're seeking the peace of the city, seek the face of God as you seek your city's good. Seek the face of God as you seek your city's good. I'm talking about prayer. Look what it says in verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you And look at this, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. Don't minimize this, guys. 
Woven throughout the Bible is a pattern that God releases his power into the lives of people who pray. Before Jesus sent out his followers into the mission field, the harvest in Matthew chapter 10, the very last thing he says in them in Matt, to Matthew chapter 9 is pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send laborers because the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. Before they go, they pray. In the book of Acts, before they go out as witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world, Jesus says, go on mission, but not yet. Go to an upper room and pray for the power of the Holy Spirit. You know why? Because you're a danger to yourself and one another if you go out on mission without the power of the Holy Spirit of God, okay? And the best thing you could do today, if you don't already do it, is to earnestly and passionately pray for the hand of God over this community. To pray, to to not be like most of us as Christians who say we believe in the power of prayer, but don't actually pray. Would Would you pray? Would you commit to pray for the people who are far from God but close to you? Would you pray for your one, those people that are in your life that God's placed it there because, because he wants them to know the gospel through you. Would you pray? What might it look like in this community if all the people in this room began to passionately and fervently pray for the work of Jesus Christ in this community? Right? I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. If you do nothing else, would you be a person who prays for the people in your life. Seek the face of God as you seek the good of the city. Pray. Here's the second thing. Here's the final thing. Get to know your city so you can better serve your city. Get to know your city so you can better serve your city. He's saying you can't get to know Babylon living on the outskirts. That's what he's telling them. You can't get to know Babylon by living over there by, by Kibar Canal, where they were living before. You've got to live inside the city. You've got to know this city. You've got to know these people so you can know how to serve the city. Um, almost all of our families have that, that one person who gives us gifts uh, for our birthday or for Christmas. And, and rather than giving us gifts we want or need, they give us the gift they want us to have. You guys know that? We call her the crazy Aunt Sue. And, and Sue, if you're here, I'm sorry you had to find out this way. But we don't like that gift. It's, it's the whole deal of like, I, I, get, I open the present and, and I open it up and, and I'm like, oh, she doesn't know me at all. I live in Florida. I don't need knitted wool socks. And I definitely don't need them 12 years in a row. We don't, we don't need it, Aunt Sue. So, sorry about that, Aunt Sue. But then there are the people in your life who are really good at gift giving. They're the kind of people who listen to you all year long and they pick up on the things that you need or you want. When I, I get a gift from a person like that, I open it up and I say, oh yeah, great. I, I needed a gift card to Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. Like I need, I need more more meat in my life. I mean, that's just a need, guys. That's not even a want. That's why God gave me these two teeth right here. I'm a carnivore. The story is this. You know what it feels like for someone to know you well enough they care about you and give you what you want or need. And I'm convinced that for a long time, the church of Jesus Christ is a lot like crazy Aunt Sue. We, we constantly talk about the gifts we want to give our community. We, we talk about the gifts we want to give the city in which we live. And yet, we constantly give the people around us gifts they don't want or need. And they wonder, do you even know me at all? 
Do you know what my life is like? And here's something that's been helpful for us as we've been looking to get to know our city and our neighbors. It's three words, stories or names, stories, needs. Names, stories, needs. On an individual level and a community-wide level as a church, our church family has been called by God to learn names, stories, and needs in our city. When I talk about names, I literally mean names. Who are the people who live around you? What are their names? How can you pray for them specifically when you hardly know their name? Get to know their names. As a community, it looks like learning the subgroups within your city. So for me, when I talk about the names of people, I'm talking about Cecil and Carol and Wendy and Ollie. I'm talking about Heather I'm talking about Bob and Sue, and also uh, I'm talking about Sue and Tom, different Sue, her husband's Tom. I'm talking about Wally and Vicki and Brandon, my neighbors. I'm talking about people who live close to me. Um, of course, when I talk about people I work with, those are my pastors, so I definitely know they need Jesus. But we're talking about, who, when I talk about a community, I'm talking about Mila Elementary School. I'm talking about Principal Raymer at Merritt Island High School. I'm talking about the Foster Support Care Network in Brevard County. I'm talking about the House of Hope Food and Clothing Ministry. I'm talking about real people. Get to know their names. And as you learn their names, look to learn their stories. Because as you learn their stories, when you ask them questions, how did you get here? Tell me about your life. Tell me about your family. What you'll find is in their story, you'll discover their needs. And when you actually listen because you care, and we actually talk to people because they're real people and you actually love them, and you're not, a, you're not a used car salesman who just wants to close the deal. Sorry if I offended you, used car salesman in the audience. But anyhow, so you're not that. You're a follower of Christ who cares about people, who loves them, and hears their stories. Here's what you do. You learn. You learn that we live in a community That's not just deeply confused, it's deeply in need. You learn that many schools are underfunded, understaffed, and underperforming because they lack parental involvement and funds from their community. You learn that there are homeless people all around you that you're you're, you're passing every day, and you learn those people are trapped in homelessness because they don't have a physical address, and they can't get a clean shower. They don't have a government ID, so they can't get a job. And because they don't have a government ID, and a physical address and they don't have access to a clean shower. They can't clean up to go to a job interview and they can't actually even put an address on the application to get the interview. You learn that there are families who support foster care network and they have biological children and that there's little support for them with all of their kids. So come Christmas time, many of those foster care families have community resources that will help them purchase presents for their foster children, but they struggle to afford gifts for their biological kids. You learn that there are individuals in our community who are hungry, who are lonely. You you learn that that the vast majority, some 85% in our community of, of senior adults in nursing home facilities do not have families who visit them. They're alone. And you learn people when you get to know their names and you get to strike up conversations about their story and And you begin to discover their needs. And guys, time would not permit me to tell you how this concept, so basic, so simple, has shaped us as a family and our community. Let me just give you a a couple of those. A few years ago, we found out that our actual street, one of the things that 
that our neighbors needed is they needed a place to meet uh, for their annual homeowners get-together. And so we hosted at our house a block party. And we became the, the house on the street that hosted the annual block party. Um, uh, it was an incredible event, and it happened every single year. And through that, I got to know that Danny, my neighbor down the street, was struggling to do some basic household repairs. And so as he's telling about basic household repairs, some of the Christ followers that also lived on our street together with me began to strategize, how can we help Danny fix the house that he's living in? Pretty basic stuff, right? We discovered that Michael was having a leak in his roof. And so, so he was up there one day trying to put a tarp over the leak. And every time he would get one side down, the other side would blow off and he would go around. And as amusing as it was to watch that, it was really sad when you thought about it. So I, maybe I needed to climb up on the roof. And by the way, it's an awesome place to share the gospel of Jesus when you're up on a roof and you're like, man, you could really fall down from a place this high, right? Then what happened if you died today? Would you, it, you go through this, you discover those needs, right? And I, two weeks ago, Danny prays to receive Jesus Christ, right? No, no, no because, not because of me, because one of our neighbors who lived right across the street from him said, you know what? God's put him in my life for a reason and me and his. I'm just going to meet his needs, with the aim, with the hope that his greatest shalom, his peace, well-being would come through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. As a, as, a, as a leadership team, we began to step into various elements of our community. One of those places was homelessness. We have a lot of homeless people in Florida. It gets warm all year long, and so they can stay outside all year long. It's way better than being homeless up here in the winter. You can go down there and be warm and have a place that, that's not freezing all the time. And so we have all these homeless people around us. We started to learn their needs. Man, it's been incredible to see what God has done. Tomorrow, we'll have a thousand families receive full groceries that will last them the entire week till it happens next week again because some people in our church family said how do we actually step into meeting the needs of people this past sunder sunday sunder that's what we call it in florida sunder uh sunder munder tuesday it's awesome this past this past summer i don't even know why i brought in sunday but this past summer we had the pleasure of taking two of those young men who'd been homeless and drug addicted in our community and, and help them get into transitional housing. It's another form of ministry that God's allowed to be birthed in our church family. And this past summer, we got to send those two young men who had just been homeless drug addicts several years ago on the streets of Merritt Island and send them as missionaries to Africa for the next 10 years of their life sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because somebody said, I'm just going to meet their needs. Praise God. This is so we approached our local schools, right? Because for years we've heard that our schools have kicked God out of our schools, right? They kick God out. Like, they, like we can do that, right? Like we have that kind of authority to kick God out of the school. To kick God, they don't want him on the, on the campus. They don't want him there. And we began to think, what if we actually, rather than abandoning, and we're a church that has a Christian school. What if we, rather than abandoning our public schools, just approach them? And we actually approached our, church, our, our leadership team of our local schools and said, hey, let me tell you about a crazy Aunt Sue that gives us all kinds of crazy gifts. And they actually got it. It, you didn't, but they got it. And we said, well, how could we serve you? How could we serve you? Like, what could we do? We were expecting them to say something like, hey, could you get us some, some equipment for our playground, maybe some, some basketballs, footballs for gym class? And, and they didn't say that at all. They said, well, we have a student who's dying because of a kidney disease, and his mom's a single mom. Christmas is coming up. It's probably going to be his last Christmas alive. Do you guys think you could do something for, for them? Um, which our response was, well, we do have a really strong God, so we'll, we'll pray and we'll do what he leads us to do. 
right, which was way over our heads. So our church family began to pray. And we set aside this one Sunday where we were going to have a a community block party. Since the block parties went so well at my house, let's just have a big one for the community. So we had this community-wide block party, right, for this young man named Blake who was dying of kidney disease. And on that Sunday, which was right before the block party, Blake's family gets a call. While we're in the service, the auditorium, kneeling in prayer as a church for Blake and our community, Blake gets a call from a local hospital saying that miracle of all miracles, a kidney had come available in time for him to get a transplant. We're praying for him. He's in the hospital getting a kidney transplant, and our whole community's watching, right? Our whole community's watching, and they ask this question. They ask this question. We asked it all over the place. And I'll tell you, they asked, why would you do this? Like, why, why? This doesn't really affect y'all's bottom line. Like, we're not giving you money. You're giving money to us. Because we're not sending all kinds of people. And, and, and what, was the, what was the response? Well, because we serve a really generous God. He so loved this world that he gave his only son. Just this last year, one of our local school principals came to know Jesus Christ. And, and just a couple weeks ago, she became the third principal of a local school who asked if we as a church would send mentors into the schools to meet one-on-one with their at-risk kids. So in a culture that says we're kicking God out of the schools, we live in a community that's asking Christians to come in and mentor students one-on-one. Last year, we had over 100 children. You can pray. For, I know. Praise the Lord. Last year, we had over 100 children pray to receive Jesus Christ on the campus of a local school. And if you knew their pastor, you would know my church has a knucklehead for a pastor. But they have a really good Savior named Jesus. And so I'm standing in my front yard, my neighbor Bob, he's the guy who goes out every morning and he has nothing but a towel to get his, his, uh, his paper. And he bends over awkwardly like, hey, Bob, the world didn't need that. The world didn't need that. So Bob is at my block party one year and he, he, he comes over and he has no personal space. And, and it's 11 o'clock in the morning. We strategically had 11 o'clock in the morning. It's like, man, nobody's trying to get drunk at a block party at 11 o'clock in the morning. How little did we know? The naive Baptist preacher. So there I am in the front yard, all these people who brought their own, even though the reservation didn't say that. And he's holding his martini or whatever it is in his hand, just precariously close to me at the time. And, of course, I see out of the corner of my eye one of our deacons slowly going by, well, I'm serving apparently drinks at the, my block party. But anyhow, this is a great thing for the reputation of the pastor in the community. So he's going by and, and Bob says this, hey, Titus, why would you guys do that? He'd heard about something we'd done as a church family. And uh, he said, why would you guys do that? And I said, well, Bob, it, it's pretty easy. Like, we serve a really generous God. He, he so loved the world. And before I could finish it, Bob says, yeah, that he gave his son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And it dawned on me because Bob said, I grew up in the church and I heard a lot about Jesus, but I never saw people live like Jesus. And here's what I realized. Our communities, I grew up here, just down the street. Here's what I know about southwestern Ohio. It's a lot like east central Florida. Our communities in this nation are not largely starving historically for a declaration of the gospel. Here's the famine. 
They have lived without a demonstration of it. And I'll tell you why. Because God himself has already done for us what he's calling us to do here. He he left his home, heaven itself, in the person of Jesus, to live among godless, confused people like us. And he sacrificially served us by giving his very life on the cross as a payment for our sin to make us right and keep us right with God the Father and provide us peace and everlasting well-being as God's children. He's already done that. And he's called us to not just tell people about that, but to live that out as he lives in us. So Liberty Heights Church, as you're exiled in the middle of a confused, godless culture, don't forget, God has you here because he wants you here. And he doesn't want you to withdraw from the people of this place. He wants you to engage them, to seek their well-being by serving them in the name and power of Jesus and by praying that the God of the harvest would open up opportunity for you to show and share and declare the love of Jesus Christ. It's who we want to be, right? It's who we want to be. Would you bow your heads with me? And some of you may have been like my neighbor Bob, where you've heard this message of the gospel, but you didn't believe because you'd never seen its power released into people's lives. If you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, I pray that even now God would be stirring your heart to know that God has met your greatest need. The need for forgiveness and restoration by sending His Son Jesus to die in your place. To be buried and raised three days later so that not only would He give His life for you, He'd live His life through you. Would you, would you call on Jesus to save you? To grant you His life, His peace? And I know many of you would say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And I would just ask you, who are the people that are far from God but near to you? Right now, would you pray for them? Would you pray that they would be saved? That they would not only hear but see the power of the gospel demonstrated through your life. Would you pray that the hand of God would rest in power over over this place, over your neighborhood, over your workplace, over your school, and that you would get caught up by the power of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ to live on mission, making the gospel love of Jesus known through demonstration and declaration. Would you pray? Father, we thank you that this very life you're calling us to live is a life that Christ has already lived on our behalf. 
It's a life that he promises to empower by his presence in us through your Holy Spirit. And I ask that we would be people who would know and love and live and proclaim the one and only gospel of Jesus by the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, may our neighbors see and hear repeated demonstration and declaration of the gospel through us. Be glorified as that happens in your power. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.